You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 18th, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello. Kara is going to be late because her cable oh, is boy. out. Not able to get internet access. But uh, once we get things sorted out, she'll be able to join us later in the show. And the proverbial fates are against us tonight because I had a massive computer problem as well. So I'll, I had to uh, move my computer into my wife's office because they're starting the de- de- destruction of our house, you know, for it to fix the uh, water damage. Uh-huh. And I had to reboot my computer. And when I did that, it did a, it did a oh, security boy. update. Now, the security update apparently completely borked my computer. My input devices don't work. The USB ports don't work as a, as a result of the patch. Uh, that's a hell of a security patch. Yeah. So now I've, I'm dead in the water. I have absolutely no way to interact with my computer. And, of course, all of the solutions involve input devices that I can't use. So they're worthless. Oh. Yeah. In fact, it stopped a lot of people's USB ports all around the is world. That, is that considered a security measure? Now I'm in the process of reinstalling Windows on my main computer, and I'm recording the show from my laptop. But you know, hopefully at some point during the sh- recording of the show, I'll be able to move over to my main computer. But yeah, that was, uh, that was a hell of an update. How about – even after like do, rebooting, like going into the BIOS, hitting F12, one of those things? I tried everything. I got Jay to help me as well. I, yeah, I obviously rebooted. I tried to you know, do a BIOS update. I tried to use a different keyboard. I you know, tried to repair Windows to roll it back to a different version. Nothing worked. Absolutely nothing. Uh, that's what we get for making fun of the devil last yep. episode. He's getting his <laughs> right? revenge. Oh, yeah. QED, obvious. That's how he does mm-hmm. it, Ev. Mm-hmm. No, doesn't he? <laughs> he or she? I mean, really. So Art Bell is dead. Yes, Art Bell. Oh, gosh. Wasn't that last week? It was, it was sudden. Was it like an alien abduction gone awry? What happened? Yeah, so Art Bell it was the original host of the Coast to Coast AM show, which is a late night radio show that was conspiracy mongering. Like he believed in every conspiracy, you know really developed a, a loyal audience of conspiracy you know conspiracy oh, yeah. theorists uh, and he would like pretend like he's like re- you know broadcasting from a secret bunker and you know the the government's on to him and he and he, it was uh, really innovative i mean he mhm definitely perry and i used to listen to him way back when create that genre of radio show you know now perry and i had one inter- small interaction with him perry actually called the show uh, in order to see if we can get on there as a guest or to, you know, to, to talk about, um, these issues from a skeptical angle. And Perry, so Perry calls the number mm-hmm. and Art Bell himself answers the phone. <laughs> like he awesome. was screening his own calls. He was really like a one man show at that point. It was That's really great. funny. Now, unfortunately, we never got on the show. It never worked out. But, you know, Perry said he was personable. He was a friendly guy. I think he was just, he was just doing his job, you know, but that was as close as we came to getting on the Art Bell show. Oh. I recall a conversation with Perry about Art Bell, and I, I wish I could remember the finer details, but essentially, he had either read or or heard from someone or somewhere that at some point, Art Bell had sort of admitted that what he did on his show, he did certainly for entertainment value, that he did not necessarily believe in some or most 
of what was going on. In a way, he sort of took on the persona of Art, of Art Bell, sort of like the way we talk about Alex Jones assuming a persona for his radio show. So I saw it. That was an interesting little parallel, I, I think. And speaking of Alex Jones, oh Alex boy. Jones is I, getting sued for defamation. Mm-hmm. He's getting sued by parents of uh, victims of the Sandy Hook really? shooting. Yeah. For what in particular? So they're, they're accusing him of deliberately lying to say that they were lying about their kids getting shot. Like there was, you know, Sandy Hook was a false flag, that the, there were no kids who were killed. It was a government operation. The parents were all crisis actors. Their, you know, their kids never existed, et cetera. And, that that resulted in them getting inundated with death threats and harassment by you know crazy conspiracy mm. theorists. You know, really had a dramatic effect on their emotional well-being, on their quality of life. Did you know real harm to them while they're struggling uh, to deal with already you know to deal with a, uh, this incredible uh, tragedy. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to see where that goes. It's it's going to be, I think, an interesting case. You know, that's a high bar. It seems like a high yeah, bar. Tough yeah. to pull off. They will have to prove that uh, Alex Jones deliberately lied that – or he had, was totally indifferent to the truth, that uh, his claims are in fact wrong and that they caused demonstrable harm. That is the standard at least in the United States. Uh, so it can't just be he was mean. You know, It has to be you – know, he's not just stating his opinion. It's not hyperbole. Uh, that these are factual claims that he knew to be wrong or was indifferent to whether or not they were right or wrong and that they uh, caused harm. So we'll see. We'll see if they could meet that bar. It's interesting. It'll be an interesting case uh, to follow. Yeah, but he's never made that clear. You know, like he's not like he has a disclaimer before his show. I mean, he knows damn well what he's doing. Well, we don't know if he knows what he's doing or not. So I, you know, there is reason to think, and we've talked about this, that he is a... And he's acting. This is a persona, a personality that he puts on. And that is a case that he made during his uh, a recent custody you know, battle that he's having. He's like, hey, listen, I'm not that crazy guy that on the, on the show. Uh, that's just a character that I'm playing. You know, or at least his lawyer made that argument on his behalf. Uh, and that may bite him in the butt now because if that's true, like he, I guess it can kind of cut both ways. The question is, can he say – you know, you can't hold me accountable for the things that my character says. It's clearly just for entertainment value. But as you say, Jay, he's never made that clear. He's deliberately, you know, in the gray zone there, and the, and that court will have to sort that out. One million, one million dollars. Yeah, it's going to be. They're suing him for more than a million dollars. You know, but think about how. Uh, oh man, it's such a difficult thing because, of course, I I believe in free speech. I mean, in our lawsuit. Yeah, I mean, in in our lawsuit, it's easy. I mean, there's, you know, the Tobinick is saying that my article is commercial speech, when in fact, it is clearly opinion, right? I am giving my professional and personal opinion about the state of the evidence with regard to specific treatments. Uh, And, you know, the courts ruled that it's clearly opinion, it's held up on appeal. So that is is a totally different issue. In this case, you know, they're, they're alleging specific factual claims that um, are dramatically and knowingly wrong. So it's, it's a very different situation. But in this case, you know, we're, with Alex Jones, we're talking about him fear-mongering a conspiracy theory that 
you know, the whole thing was a setup and that the parents are lying about losing their children. And, you know, that's where the death threats are coming from. Not just him, of course. I mean, these death threats are coming, would have come, I think, either way. But he was throwing fuel on that fire. And I can't, you know, the skeptic in me, um, after the skeptic in me cringes and cries a little bit, I want to freak out. You know, I'm like, what the hell? Like, you know, it's not okay to, to blatantly lie. I mean, you know, any anybody with any rational thinking going on is not going to believe that those parents and, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people are lying about those kids getting killed in the school. You know, at the time I was living, you know, two or three miles from where it actually took place mm-hmm. and driving through that town every day. I mean, this this was not concocted under any circumstance and it's easy to prove. Yeah. I mean, it's it's absurd. You know, not only that, Jay, but like we have friends, oh, I mean, yeah. very cl- close yeah, childhood friends of Evan, uh, parents who had several children in the school. She was there. She was standing outside the smashed-in window where, where the killer broke yeah, in. Yeah, the main entrance, yep. Yeah, and, and while the, hearing gunfire going on in the school, knowing that her kids were in there, her husband is a first responder. He was there. He saw the bodies. I mean, you know, we would all have to be involved in the conspiracy. We would have to be part of the conspiracy. The whole town would have to be people, you know, a network of people for several towns around. I mean, it would be impossible to fake something like that. Just absolutely absurd. Yeah. And I think some of the conspiracies are revolving around the idea that this is just to take our guns away. Yeah. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the point is, my, my point is, what is your you point? Know, where do you, it's the line. It's always the line, Bob. Where do you draw the line? You know, like, should Alex Jones be able to to continue to to rant about something that is so obviously and so easily provable, you know, he's he's saying that these people are are lying and encouraging ill will towards these parents whose lives are ruined. Well, only to the extent that he cannot cause harm to others, and that's what a court needs to decide. I agree. I agree, Evan. You're right. Court needs to decide. All right, Bob. Get us started on the news item. This is going to be about a new technology that has to do with communicating without actually speaking. Yeah, this one was fascinating and a little weird. Uh, So MIT has developed a prototype device that uses sub-vocalizations to allow you to communicate using natural language utterly silently and undetectably. And total total silence. silence. Uh, So this is what the researchers claim that their device called Alter Ego can do. So the device itself wraps around your ear and kind of hugs a small part of your of your neck and face. And yeah, it looks a little weird, maybe even a lot weird. And but it's kind of cool, maybe. But uh, I think this is just and this is a prototype after all. So Arnav Kapoor, who led the systems development, uh, said, "Our idea was, could we have a computing platform that's more internal?" that melds human and machine in some ways, and that feels like an internal extension of our own cognition. So that's a that's a tall order, I think. Um, but it seems like they've really made some progress in that. So the two, the, there's two key technologies here that allowed this to happen. Most importantly, this device detects and interprets and transmits what's called sub-vocalizations or silent speech. So often when your brain thinks about an action, your body actually prepares to carry it out and it does so in in ways that are detectable. So this is true, uh, for example, of many of your dream actions uh, that you mentally engage in every night. You know, you dream like you're doing something, you're running, you're jumping, uh, your, your, your body kind of 
tries to do it in, in, in certain ways. Um, in fact, in fact, your body is so tempted to do what you dream. That's why you're paralyzed. So you don't actually act out your dream and, and fall out your window. So, so when you specifically pronounce words in your mind, the muscles surrounding your mouth and your throat, they kind of get ready to, to actually form those words and say them, but they don't, they, they, they stop at the last moment and they don't do it. But, but when you're actually saying those words in, internally, it's kind of happening in the background. So at, at the far end of the spectrum, there you have people, and we've all we've all done this or seen people. These are people who read when they're reading; they're, they're silently mouthing the words. Right? You see people that do that, and that so that's a kind of a subvocalization uh, that's that's actually manifesting itself in an involuntary way into into actually you know making the movements, if not actually you know doing everything except actually saying the words. So alter ego, um, it's actually like some, some of the advanced prosthetics out there. Uh, they, they measure the neuromuscular signals created by your intention to move your lost limb. And then they translate them into electrical signals that your prosthetic limb can act on. So this is electro, a myography. So alter, alter ego performs a similar task, but this is actually, uh, more difficult, uh, cause you're, when you're, you, when you're using language, it's actually very, much more difficult, uh, which is why, you know, it's taken this long to even have something like this. Um, although there have been similar platforms in the past, but this, this one, um, at least the prototype outperforms them. So. So it has 16 electrodes, electrodes in the prototype, and they're, they're saying that they can get that down to four electrodes to perform almost as well, or essentially as well as 16 electrodes. So the electrodes gather the signals, um, which are then compared to templates, essentially, that are stored in, in the neural network. So this device then can use these silent subvocalizations to send commands that would then go to an AI assistant like Alexa or Siri, or to a device, or eventually even to other people. Um, which is one of the, uh, one, probably one of the real major goals here. So, so that's outbound for the inbound communication to really make this like a two way communication. The device uses bone conduction speakers. Now these, you probably heard of these before. Uh, these transmit sounds through the bones in your head right into your inner ear. So the most important, the reason why this is important in this, in the context of the silent communication is that means it means that you're still aware of your sound environment. And you're not isolating yourself uh, as you would if you were putting in some earbuds to listen to music or talk on the phone. You know, you're still you can still be fully engaged in, in your soundscape, uh, your normal soundscape, uh, while still listening to whatever communication might be coming back through these bone conductors, through the alter ego. So you can't just strap these on uh, and start using them, um, which probably makes sense. You probably anticipated that. It takes some training. But for the, for testing the prototype, the testers only had to calibrate for 10 minutes, which uh, is really not long at all. And I like, I like uh, how the researchers said that it takes time for the device to learn your accent, you know, your neurological accent in, in a sense, because everybody's a little bit different, which is why uh, it, you can't just jump on this thing and start using it, or it jumps on you, I suppose. Uh, so right now, Alter Ego only has a few testing platforms, if you will. Uh, one is for... Uh, um, for math, so you could ask it, you know, s- silently. You could say, you know, what's uh, one hundred seventy-five thousand three hundred twelve plus seventeen thousand nine sixty-five. Whatever you can, you could just ask these subvocally these uh, large numbers, and you could do uh, math. You could subtraction and addition, whatever. Um, another one is playing uh, games of chess. Now both are set up to use twenty commands. Uh, so, th- so they have a limited vocabulary. But even with that, they uh, they said they gained uh, they had a ninety two percent accuracy 
uh, testing the prototype. And Kapoor said that that would probably improve with regular use. So, you, you know, you're getting low to mid 90s, 90 percentile in accuracy. That's, that's pretty damn good. And it's pretty encouraging, I think. So uh, f- regarding the future, Kapoor said, I think we'll achieve full conversation someday. And so, so what, what, you know, what are you going to do with all this stuff? What, what, you know, what's the benefit here? Well, there's a lot, I think. Uh, one is uh, it's useful in noisy environments. Um, I was at a, at a concert recently and it was just so loud that I mean, if you wanted to communicate with somebody, it was almost impossible. You, know, you would essentially have to shout in their ear. But with this device, think about it. You're in a noisy environment so loud that you can't even hear anything. You could communicate with a device, with Siri, with you could communicate with somebody across the noisy room using this technology. Or how about in a how about in an environment where silence is required? A library comes to mind, but also movie theater. How about military oper- operations where where stealth is paramount? Um, I remember we were playing um, we were playing paintball years ago. We had these uh, you know these communication devices uh, strapped to our heads, you know, conventional audio you know microphone uh, that was uh, that we, were, we so we were all linked together and it was really cool because because if you know paintball there's, you didn't have to shout we were just talking very silently to each other and I remember the opposing team saying that they were kind of freaked out because they couldn't hear us at all because there was no you know there was no noise except for our movement and so th- imagine this this is that technology on steroids I mean you imagine even a whisper uh, would be too loud compared to this thing uh, you could just just essentially think the words and have them communicated. One of the other big uses is for anyone that is voice impaired. Um, if you literally can't speak, but uh, if you still have the use of the muscles in your jaw and face, then you could still uh, basically you could essentially talk to people using the using this device, uh, even though you cannot produce any sound at all. So, like I said, this is a prototype, but I think uh, the results they've had are incredibly encouraging, and I'll be really interested to see where you know how this develops over the ensuing five to ten years, and uh, and what they could eventually achieve with this. Cool stuff. Yeah. So, Bob, are you thinking like early use would be like people talking to each other um, through their helmets, like if it were like a a strike team or something like that, like a military use in the very beginning? Sure. Um, sure. I mean, that's. I mean, for for military use, I remember watching uh, Ghost in the Shell um, animated episodes years ago, and they would they were communicating with each other uh, completely silently. Now, these were people that uh, you know that had they were basically cyborgs. So, I mean, they weren't they probably weren't using anything like this. I mean, they probably had you know radio receivers and antennas and whatever you know communications they needed. You know, their their phones were essentially in their skulls. So, but but it reminded me of that because they were actually they were thinking these thoughts and communicating them. So this would be similar to that, Jay. And yeah, I mean, military use. I'm sure they might. Who knows? They might start do- putting some money into this. Uh, you know, for military use, because it could really come in handy for, you know, when you're on a stealth mission and you can actually imagine communicating using natural language without making a sound, a peep or controlling devices or robots or whatever, just by thinking the commands. Oh, man, that's that's a, you know, it could be a game changer. Another question, like, would you actually be able to hear the person's Voice. Well, that's just it. Yeah, hear- that's. I thought of that. That's uh, right now the way the way they're they're thinking about this is. I mean, it wouldn't be like talking on the phone. It. I. I would assume that initially you would be hearing, you know, a translation of your voice. You know, and it could be a little bit robotic. But I mean, I don't think it would. It's an insurmountable problem that they could have, you know, a template of your of your vocalizations uh, in the database, and it could fairly faithfully reproduce 
you know, your voice using using this technology. Um, but yeah, it wouldn't exactly be like talking to somebody on the phone, but it would be, you know, robotic language is getting, you know, pretty subtle and nuanced these days. So uh, I think you could have a pretty, a pretty regular conversation uh, with this device, even if it doesn't sound exactly like the person you're talking to. All right. Thanks, Bob. Evan, you are going to tell us about how especially wealthy Americans know less about nutrition than they think they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I saw this at Real Clear Science, their aggregator, and it was picked up from the website, theconversation.com. And the headline reads, Wealthy Americans know less than they think they do about food and nutrition. Hmm. Uh, it was an article by Cheryl Kirschenbaum and Douglas Bueller. And, uh, well, here's the summary of the results of their study. Yeah, Bueller. (laughs) What their findings revealed is that household income has a significant influence on access to information and shapes attitudes about diet and nutrition, which I don't think is surprising. But higher income does not consistently correlate with better understanding. And they reached this conclusion based on the latest food literacy and engagement poll, which was conducted just over a year ago from Michigan State University's Food at MSU initiative. And the poll finds that for households earning at least $50,000 annually, 49% of those households believe that they know more than the average person about global food systems. By comparison, households under $50,000 per year, only 28% of those households believe that they're better than average in understanding food systems. Now, in the same survey, respondents were asked if they avoid products containing chemicals when purchasing groceries, and they deliberately left the term chemical as undefined. They just said, products containing chemicals when purchasing groceries. 73% of respondents with high incomes said, yes, they avoid products containing chemicals, and 65% of people living in lower income households also said that they avoid buying the chemicals. Now, I think that's a Pretty revealing disconnect between the population as a whole and basic science literacy. I mean, when this, regardless of the difference, whether it's 65% or 73%, I think either way, it's too many people who just do not understand the word chemical and they're exposing themselves as just not having this basic understanding of science. And I think that what this part of the poll concludes is perhaps the Dunning Kruger effect once again is ruling the day in that the people with moderate to higher incomes when compared to those of the poorer incomes, the higher incomes tend to be worse at overestimating their perceived base of knowledge when it comes to food. So that was that part of the survey. But they they touched on some other things in the survey. The poll supports prior research suggesting that poor people overall appear to have less access to information about health, safety, and nutrition. And they cite this example. Just 59% of lower-earning Americans recognize the term uh, bisphenol A, BPA, which is an industrial chemical in some plastics and resins that can seep into food and beverages, that they've recognized the term. But by contrast, 80% of wealthier consumers are familiar with the term. And only 85% of lower-income respondents were familiar with the term GMOs, compared to 93% of higher earners. So in a weird way, I think, that may not be a bad thing nowadays for people to be less familiar maybe with the term GMO due to the anti-GMO movements having hijacked the term for their anti-science crusade. Um, so I thought that was interesting and, and sort of leads to another point of the survey where they observed that even though higher earners have more access to information about food, 
they are also more likely to be influenced by misinformation and pseudoscience. So for example, in the survey, 43% of those with the higher incomes reported that they avoid purchasing GMO foods, while only 26% of lower earners reported that they avoid purchasing GMO foods. And I suppose that those who either can afford to have 24-7 online access, just that higher level of internet information that they can get, they're, they're more likely to drink from the fire hydrant in the internet. And in doing so, for all the good information that's out there, they're consuming 10 times that number in garbage, lies, propaganda, and all the other stuff that goes along with it. So... That was sort of the main points of the study that they were able to pull out. Well, I have to point out that 49% of the people in the higher income bracket saying they had an above average knowledge of nutrition is actually appropriate, right? I mean, half should be above average by definition if you have a normal distribution. The more important thing here, I think, is the, as you say, the disconnect in terms of information, but also misinformation. And I think that could just reflect a couple of things. One, just generically higher socioeconomic status clearly equates with more access to the internet, more access to information in general. Mm -hmm. And then also, I think there's a confidence issue here, as you say, kind of a Dunning-Kruger type effect, where having access to a little bit more information makes you a lot more confident in your opinions, makes you much more likely to go against the consensus of scientific opinion because you think you're well-informed. I you know, I have all this information. I've quote-unquote done my research on the internet. Uh, therefore, if my opinions seem you know, out of the mainstream, I earned that opinion because I've, I've looked up all this information. And again, it shows you know, how critical it is to be able to not only access information, but to evaluate it critically. And that's the thing that doesn't happen until you, you know, either get to very high levels of science education or have specific you know, education in critical thinking itself. And that does not automatically come with higher socioeconomic status. Yeah, I don't think you're surprised by the results of, of, of any of this. It supports what we've talked about before and what we've read before. Yeah, it's pretty consistent with you know our, our activism over the last 20 years. And there, there's a lot of evidence that shows that disposable income correlates really well, not only with higher education, but also with utilizing alternative medicine and a, a lot of woo unscientific things. I think because of the these phenomena that we're talking about. All right, Jay, tell us all about rare earth elements. All right, so I'm sure most of you have heard the phrase rare earth or rare earth metals or rare earth elements, but but what exactly are they? I'm going to tell you, a rare earth element or metal is one of a set of 17 chemical elements in the periodic table. So if you're looking at a periodic table, they're on row six and they're numbered 57 to 71. There should be 15 in there. And then there are also two others that you could add to that list, uh, scandium and yttrium. Uh, scandium is 21 and yttrium is number 39. Um, and these are called uh, lanthanides. An interesting fact is that rare earth elements and metals are not rare except for promethium, which happens to be radioactive. Uh-oh. And, and I'll get a little bit into uh, why they're not rare in a minute. So the reason why we care about rare earth metals is because they, they're used in things like batteries and other green technologies like turbines. They're also found in you know some types of light bulbs are found in computers, LEDs, smartphones, hybrid vehicles. Yttrium can be used to make camera lenses and superconductors, as an example, and cell phone screens. So you may have heard in the past that there was a fear of rare earth shortage, but 
all indications say that that was not based on reality. Rare earth is actually plentiful. It's just hard to extract. And you may have heard in the news that a very large deposit of rare earth was found in the deep sea mud approximately 1,850 kilometers southeast of Tokyo. The deposit is located around the island of Minamatori in the Pacific Ocean. Researchers from Japan have estimated that in a 2,499 square kilometer area of seabed lie 16 million tons of rare earth oxides. Along with that estimate, they're saying that there is approximately 400 to 800 years worth of rare earth resources there, depending on the particular uh, rare earth element we're talking about. Because the extraction process is so complicated, though, and expensive, some people speculate that it could take up to five years to figure out how to mine the deposits. I think it's way more than that. I was reading a very degree of, of estimates on that number. It's probably going to be a lot longer because the deposits are 16,000 feet to 20,000 feet or 4,000 meters to 6,000 meters under the surface of the water. That's very far down. I'm pretty sure that we haven't even really mined anything that's that far down at this point. And there's also on top of that very serious environmental concerns, you know, just disturbing the seabed to the degree that we would be disturbing it to mine all the regolith that we we want and all these elements. It's just, you know, going it could be very hazardous and, and very dangerous to uh to the ocean. So we got to be careful about that. I think a very important question here is how significant is this particular find? Now, people are saying things like it's a game changer. It has tremendous potential. You know, this could be a you know, huge, long-term, dramatic change on the impact of our technology and how much of it we have and everything. The reason is that even though these minerals are abundant, they're not likely to be so concentrated. And that's why this find is actually more significant than the other places where we get these materials from. It's because they are heavily concentrated. Now, you may have heard that they're saying that this is an unlimited supply. Of course, it's not unlimited. But they're they're saying, though, a, a supply level that they think that we have in front of us with what we're looking at, this could change, literally change society and our technology because where certain materials were either you know, you have to wait to get them or they're very expensive. Once they ramp this up and they, they fine tune the technology and all the things that we would need in order to to extract this, and because it's going to be so consistently there for a very long time, well past all of our lives, it is going to have a dramatic effect on what we're going to achieve with these with these products, you know, with these elements. So, you know, I think this is encouraging. Uh, I think that there are a lot of experts saying, you know, double thumbs up. This is a great thing. There's going to be some time and consideration to get at it, but it's definitely there and we're definitely going to go for it. Yeah. As you said, Jay, it's not that the rare earths are rare. They're actually very common in the earth's crust. Yttrium, for example, is more common than copper, but they don't occur in ores. They're not concentrated in nice ores that you could smelt, you know, and purify. They're more diffuse in the soil, and you have to use very toxic extraction methods. They're often the, the deposits are laced with radioactive materials like thorium that have to be separated. The chemicals used in purifying them are often highly toxic themselves. Uh, some estimates are that producing one ton of rare earths produces two tons of toxic sludge, uh, and then. That has to be stored safely somehow. Uh, now, China has captured 85% of the rare earth market 
largely because they were able to dump cheap rare earths onto the market. They forced out, for example, the only American company that was producing any significant amount of rare earths. Um, and partly China does that by really skimping on their environmental practices, you know, like not having uh, sufficiently lined beds for the toxic water and then, and then it seeps into the ground, for example. There have been many reports over over the recent years about how you know, horribly environmentally toxic the, uh, the Chinese rare earth purification uh, companies are. So it would be great you know, to have another major player in the rare earth market, such as Japan. It's good that these are more highly concentrated, and you know hopefully that will enable them to compete with more environmentally friendly methods. I think that's going to be critical. It's unfortunate that it's so far under the water and that's going to add, I think, a huge expense to their extraction. But the good, the thing that there's like 400 to 800 years of rare earths down there is awesome. And even if it takes us 50 years to develop a technology to really extract, you know, economically extract those rare earths, you know, it's good to know that we're going to be set for a while. And that, of course, will give us so much time to, you know, de- advance technology that we, we don't, we can't really even think, you know, 400 years in the future. We can't say, like, are we going to be needing rare earths 400 years from now? Who, who the hell knows? We, we can't even predict. So for the foreseeable future, we know we have a supply of rare earths. And it is so important in so many different technologies. Gadolinium, which is a rare earth, is used in uh, MRI scans as a contrast material, for example. You know, you, you mentioned just a few of them, but it, they, they do have really, really critical properties. They're, they're, they make the best super magnet, magnets. They, they are these soft ductile metals that are have great physical properties in terms of conductance, etc. That's why they're, they're used in so much technology like smartphones and computers and LED screens, etc. So I think this is encouraging overall. Yeah, it's, it's a great thing. I mean, if, if they can make it affordable and bring the pricing down in particular, this would be fantastic. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses Plus. You know, it's a good chance that if you're listening to this podcast that you're doing it because you want to learn. And I got to tell you, The Great Courses Plus has given all of us an amazing opportunity to keep learning even after we're done with school. You guys get unlimited access to a huge library of fascinating lectures on topics like physics, history, forensic science, you could even learn a new language. All presented, of course, by award-winning experts. These guys and girls know what they're talking about. And this gives you the flexibility to watch The Great Courses Plus on a plethora of devices, including your smartphone, your tablet, your laptop, your TV, your sonic screwdriver, you name it. This week, we're recommending The Theory of Everything, The Quest to Explain All Reality by Dr. Don Lincoln. This is an excellent course that goes over the big hitters in cosmology like Newton, Einstein, and other scientists who describe nothing less than, you know, the whole universe. So we want you to sign up for The Great Courses Plus, and as a listener of our show, you'll receive a free trial to enjoy any of their courses by going to our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. So go ahead and start your free trial today. Sign up now. TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, well, Kara is finally able to join us. Kara, thanks, thanks for jumping on. Let's thank you to uh, Time Warner, <laughs> aka Spectrum, for allowing me to be here today. Nice. Yes, you just, you're just, uh, your internet access just shit the bed yesterday. Is that what happened? Yeah, it happens all the time in LA. It's so frustrating. Really? Yes, it's so Why frustrating. Is that? 
it's not uncommon that you look up, you know, outages and stuff, and there's just like a massive red dot over Los Angeles. You're like, okay, cool. Well, that's that's the first time it's happened with us. You, we should just have a um a four G backup. You know, all you need to do is be able to talk with us. You know, you can that's true. Like locally. just do it over my phone, like on LTE. Yeah, or on an yeah. iPad or something. We'll do that. That's next true. Time. I just got a new iPad, you guys. I'm so excited. Oh yeah, the new Ooh, ones are really good. Like well, I was. I was going to get the new iPad Pro. I actually bought it, but then I realized that the new iPad, the new regular iPad is supported, um, or I'm sorry, supports Apple Pencil. And so I compared them. And honestly, for my purposes, I don't really need all the fanciness of the iPad Pro, which costs twice as much. So I returned it and I just got the 9.7 inch um, regular iPad. So now I'm going to start getting all my textbooks as eBooks. You can handwrite notes and then convert it into type. It's amazing. Yeah, I use my iPad for my ebooks. It's the best. All right, well, Kara, you are going. So you've t- we've spoken previously about the problem of plastics clogging up our oceans. Yeah. This time around, you're going to talk about possible solutions, including plastic eating bacteria. Absolutely. So, you know, we've heard of some of the solutions that are on the horizon, like the big nets that have a fine mesh. I think one of them was invented by actually a schoolboy. Um, a lot of really cool things that could help. But so far, we're having a problem, I think, with scalability and viability. And this solution is not that different, but it is something that's exciting um, that's on everybody's radar. So, Okay, let's break this down. Uh, no pun intended. Hmm. PET, we, we've all heard of it, right? A plastic that's often used in bottles. Sometimes it's PETE is how it's written. You've seen it on the bottom of your bottles, the, those letters. Polyethylene, mm-hmm. uh, terephthalate or terephthalate, however you want to pronounce it. It takes over 400 years to environmentally decompose. It is recyclable, but it degrades each time it gets recycled. Now, here's just a couple stats, I think, to get in our heads why this is so dire. Globally, this blew my mind when I found this out. Globally, we are now using plastic bottles at a rate of 1 million per minute. Oh! What? Yeah. Yeah. And only 9% of them worldwide are getting recycled. Oh, that's not good. Not at all. So... There are estimates that by 2020, over half a trillion plastic bottles will be sold annually if we don't do anything, you know, legislatively to stop that. And by 2050, get this, oh gosh, the ocean will contain more plastic by weight than fish Mm -hmm. and and landfills will contain 12 billion metric tons of it. So it's not just all the plastic that's in the ocean. It's also in landfills at the same time. So you guys may have read about this recently discovered enzyme that actually breaks down plastic. It's called polyethylene terephthalatase or PETase. That ace suffix is a typical suffix of enzymes. That's how you can usually identify them. It was originally discovered in Japan in a landfill. There's a special bacterium called Idionella sakainsis. sakainsis. I'm not sure how to pronounce that because it's a Japanese um, place where it was named for. And, you know, this was a news story, I think, a few years ago. But there's new research that's kind of added onto this. Um, before I get to that, I want you to keep in mind that polyethylene and other polyesters, um, polyethylene is a type of polyester, they've been around in nature for, you know, probably millions of years, at least thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, they protect the leaves of plants. So there's this thin kind of polyester film on a lot of different plant leaves. So bacteria have naturally evolved versions of polyester eating enzymes before. But this one was found in large quantities in a landfill, and it seemed to have evolved quite rapidly because PET has only been around for about 50 years, um, an ability to break down specifically 
PET. In this new study, researchers used molecular chemistry techniques um, where what they did was they made a 3D model of the PET ACE enzyme, the one that breaks it down, using something called an X-ray beam line at a lab in Oxfordshire in the UK. And then what they did is they played around with the residues on the surface of the enzyme and were able to figure out a more efficient way to have it bond to PET. So, you know, it shows that this evolved in nature, but obviously it wasn't perfected. Um, and using some, you know, ingenious lab science, they could perfect the binding affinity of it to PET to help it break it down more efficiently. They also tested it on something called PEF plastic, which is a plant-based alternative um, that also degrades super slowly in nature. And they were excited because it actually worked better on PEF than PET. So that's like a double uh, application there. So currently the way that – because, you know, we can all recycle our plastic bottles, right? Like a number one plastic is a PET plastic, a polyethylene terephthalate plastic. And you can throw that in the recycling bin and it actually does get broken down and then turned into something else. The problem is that you may have not known um, that plastic has like a downward quality spiral. So each time plastic is recycled, you can't use it for the same thing it was made for. Previously, you have to use it for something where you can have a worse quality plastic in it. So like lots of times you'll see that bo- plastic bottles, which are clear and strong, will become like fleeces. And then those fleeces will go into carpet fibers. And it'll go, yeah, it'll go down the chain until eventually it ends up in a landfill because you can't use it anymore. And so there's some correlation there with the numbers that you see on the bottom of plastic, they don't follow a perfect pattern, but the numbers actually do represent something, right? If you see a number one on the bottom inside those little arrows, the recycling symbol, number one plastics are are PETs like water bottles, uh, cooking oil bottles, medicine containers. Number two is HDPE, high density density polyethylene. You see that it's a little bit thicker in like laundry and dish detergent bottles, shampoo bottles, some toys. Number three is V or polyvinyl chloride, um, which you see in pipes and shower curtains and medical tubing. Number four is low-density polyethylene. So that's like wrappings, grocery bags, sandwich bags. Number five is polypropylene. That's a little thicker, like Tupperware, medicine containers. Number six is polystyrene. That's like styrofoam. Um, Lots of times that's actually not recyclable. A lot of places will only recycle one through five. And then number seven is other Um, And other is a catch-all. It could be any combination of one through six or some other types of uncommonly used plastics. And most recycling facilities don't recycle number seven either because it's too complicated to separate it out. Remember that those numbers mean something. They use those numbers in recycling facilities. And depending on the quality of the plastic, the next time they use it, it's not going to be perfectly recyclable the way that aluminum and glass are. You can re, you know, you can remake an aluminum can over and over and over. Same thing with paper. But, um, with plastic, it only has a certain amount of life in in its recycling ability. And the problem, too, is that that loop starts with what? What do we make plastic out of? Petroleum. Yeah. So it's not good. I mean, in many ways, it's not good. It's mucking up the oceans and the landfills. It doesn't break down naturally, um, at least not for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. It does break down physically to really small pieces in the ocean, but that just makes fish think it's plankton and fills up their guts, which is terrible. Um, And it takes oil to make it. So we've got this problem, right, where there's a ton of plastic out there already. We keep making new plastic because we can't use the old plastic for high quality things like we want. So we keep using making new plastic from oil. It's just a problem. So the the hope is that using this kind of um, technology to 
using PETase to break down plastic much more quickly into its component parts. That's what it does. That's the important thing is that we can reuse those building blocks and make new plastics out of it and what they call close the loop. But as we say on SGU all the time, we're about five to 10 years away from this probably (laughs) being truly viable because the problem is right now it takes a few days. And even though that sounds amazing, I mean, it's a massive improvement over 400 years. It's not economically viable. Like recycling centers just won't use it if it only takes a few days or if it still takes a few days. Um, so they've got to figure out, first of all, how to how to increase the actual quantity of these enzymes and figure out how to make them um, scalable. And then second, it's got to be commercially viable. And the only way to make it commercially viable is to speed up the process. So they're just going to keep on keep on working on it. But, you know, fingers crossed, this could be a really good thing for our very, very sick planet. Hopeful. It's hopeful, yeah, it, right? It is. It is. Kara, now, I, I read that um, most of the uh, the plastic that gets introduced to the ocean comes from – the bulk of it is coming from 10 rivers. Yeah. I remember reading that too, that it's actually – there's these points of least resistance that a lot of it comes from. Yeah. And then some of it, of course, comes from coastal cities and things like that. Yeah, and stuff that falls off of ships and everything. But I mean it, I think when they did the review, they figured out that – you know, a lot of it is coming from these rivers that that spill into the ocean. And you know, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm so far from being able to like talk about like what to do about that. But my brain immediately went to like big nets. You know, like can't they just mm-hmm. capture all that crap? And- well, they're working on it. You know, there's a lot of different things in place to work on it. But um, how's this for irony? One of the biggest problems in the ocean is big nets. You know, so mm-hmm. like when you actually look at plastic, we need, we need um, bigger nets refuse, to catch all the other nets to catch all the nets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you do see it a lot. You see these like you see these large fish and large mammals that are getting strangled by these nets. Oh, um, you see them floating and clumping together. And the thing is, these nets are so good at catching other plastics that they they form these big flotillas within the ocean where they just like grab a bunch of garbage. So like in a way that's good, but in another way it's it's quite dangerous. So. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of really interesting technologies in use right now, but none of them, I think, are a, a real panacea. And it does seem like we're going to need something hap- working at the molecular level like this um, instead of just physically picking up all that plastic. Because regardless of if we can capture all of it in the ocean, what, we're just going to put it in the landfill. You know, we got to figure out how to get rid of it all together. Yeah. yeah, we got to turn it, try to turn it back into something useful. It's really the only option we have because it's not going to go away, right? No matter what, we can't get rid of it. I remember I recently had um, this incredible woman on my podcast who uh, – on my uh, personal podcast. She wrote a book called um, – let me find her. Lori Winkless. She wrote a book about – like the city about how the city works a lot of engineering uh, stuff but she's really interested in waste disposal also she made this really wonderful comment in in when i interviewed her that was like where do you think away is like you don't just throw things away there is no away the sun like we have to, have to yeah like we have to be more sun, mindful yeah. of like what we're talking about when we talk about away and i think that's a really important point oh yeah science and the city highly recommend it very good book anyway yeah i mean even if you had a machine that could atomize garbage mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of atoms yeah, you got to do something with those atoms. And that's like best case scenario, yeah, right? right? Wouldn't we sequester it like we do spent nuclear material? Yeah, and even that is a massive problem. Like where do we put it? We end up burying it and then we have all of these issues around how do we like 
how do we tell future generations that it's dangerous and you shouldn't dig here for fossil fuels or, you know, put any sort of building materials here because it's going to be radioactive for tens of thousands of years? Are they even going to speak the same language in tens of thousands of yeah, years? Yeah, they came up with like a sign that basically shows like somebody melting, I think. Yeah, but then it's like, what, what makes us think that sign is going to last that long? I mean, there's just a lot of issues. <laughs> even if, even if it does, you, it's funny. You can look at a sign with like symbols, like, like if you go near this, you will die type of easy stuff. And it's so funny because there's so many other interpretations that you wouldn't think of that, that also make a lot of sense, especially when you're not, you know, you're so far removed from the culture that you're in. Yes, yeah. they're it's so, so culture bound. Like a sign that says you could melt by going here might be read by another culture as <laughs> yummy food down below. Yeah, or, <laughs> or shrink your waist and lose weight by yeah. touching this. <laughs> Yeah, they'll you figure never it. Know. Yeah, they'll figure it yeah, out. Yeah, like fast. the gold record, right? On Voyager. Like, I don't know. It looks kind of sexual to me. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> but basically, you know, for any major technology or any major part of the technological ecosystem, we need to think about the, the entire life cycle, you know, from beginning yeah. to end. You yeah, know? that's become a theme on, on um, SGU lately, right? Whenever we talk about. Um, satellites and how, you know, putting things out there in low yeah. Earth orbit. We got to figure out how they're going to end their lives. There's a lot of things where historically we just didn't, we didn't, we weren't forward thinking. Yeah, of that. course. We're too I mean, excited like, getting there in the first yeah. place. You know, well, the, the environment was always a bottomless pit. And now yeah. it isn't. Yeah. It and isn't of course, either for resources or as a disposal. And of course, there were always forward-thinking authors who I think really warned us about this. And that's why I love kind of mid-century sci-fi. You know, that's yeah. why I love Bradbury. Didn't he write an awful lot about plastic and kind of warn us about the problems with it? Because they, they saw it. They were really early futurists. All right. Thanks, Kara. Jay, it's yep. Who's That Noisy Time. I will deal with the noisy from two weeks ago soon. But All last right. week, I played a special noisy, which noisy. I will put a uh, who noisy. <laughs> and here it is. Here's what I played last week. Now, I was kind of surprised that I didn't get a ton of emails. I didn't get a ton. But I had a couple of, a couple of funny things. One person wrote in, it's audio of, some, of people talking, played, sped up, and then played with church bells in the background. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's my guess. Yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> um, yeah, take that to the next step, and what do you got? So I, yeah. I, I well, you know, the you- people who got it actually took the time to slow it down, right? Because nobody could just recognize that by their ear. Yeah, so that's the big trick here. The trick was this was an Easter egg. This actually was the very first SGU legit Easter egg. That was in celebration of episode 666. And if you paid attention and you did slow it down, here is actually what you heard. Hey, good job. You found the secret message. Now all you have to do is listen to the following clip taken from one of my favorite movies to tell me what passage in the Bible was this clip taken from. And then email me the answer at info at theskepticsguide.org. Good luck. The path of the righteous man is protected on all sides by the entities of salvation and the children of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness 
for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finest of lost And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brother. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Samuel Jackson in Pulp Fiction when he's quoting the Bible before oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he kills he kills those kids. Say what again? So um, is that one of your favorite movies? Oh yeah, Pulp Fiction is a masterpiece. It's a, I watched it recently. It's a very good movie. It's, it yeah. is a very it's, good movie. It, it does everything right in my opinion. Just just a fantastic film. Yeah, I mean, I thought that that was you know that Bible quote is very funny, and there, there, to me, there's something. Um, and, you know, there's something about the way that Samuel Jackson says the, that particular line that just tweaks me. Like, I love it so much. Um, one of my fantasies is to have him yell at me. I want Samuel Jackson to yell at me. Just to, you know, his whole shtick. <laughs> really, Jay? Yeah, it just would be fun. You know, of course, mm-hmm. it would be. I don't mean for him to actually be angry at me. I just would li- like to ha- hear that. But bottom line is um, <laughs> three people, guys, three people figured it out. But there Good can on be them. only one. Yes. There can uh, be only one. Uh, the three people are in order of when I got the email. So the first person I read is the winner. Hakan mm. Lund is the winner. Great job. Absolutely great job. Uh, the second person to send in the correct answer was Joshua Twilly. Excellent job, Joshua. And Joey Batera also sent it in. These three people figured it out. It was a legit Easter egg. I've been telling Steve for years I wanted we wanted to mess around with putting an Easter egg in or having some 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 type of thing happen where people if they were paying real attention and they caught on to it that there would be puzzles and stuff. But this was about as much time as we could, you know, piece together to do it. Pretty obvious though, now that you hear it, right? There's sped up talking, <laughs> right? I just thought everyone – Steve really was like, Jay, you can't make it too obvious. I mean you, you, everyone's going to figure it out. I'm like, no, I don't think so. My gut told me that, that it wasn't going to be an avalanche, but I, I thought we'd get more than three people. But that's good. I guess I, you know, that's just about that's the right number good. if you Three's think about good. it. What is this person going to win? Oh, they're actually going to win something? Oh, yes. This uh, Hakan Lund won something significant from the SGU. Steve and I threw around some ideas. Steve, did you finalize what you think would be adequate for this – this hoop we had him jump through. A pair of edible underwear. Yes. What? No. 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 What? No. Oh, he's going to get to join us for science or fiction. All right. Oh, oh hey. Yes. Excellent. Yes. Yeah, so, Hakan, you can uh, first tell me how to pronounce your name. And then second, <laughs> I will be emailing you or you can email me. We'll email each other and we will uh, discuss this. We'll, we'll schedule it. And uh, we'll have you on the show. Of course, that's only if you want to be on the show. Uh, but thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. You know, the bell tolling, my idea for this noisy was that the bell tolling was supposed to be the big distraction. But when you slow yeah, it way down, the bell, the bell sound almost disappears because it's just mm-hmm. such a, becomes such a low sound that you can't even hear it. And that was like the little audio thing that I did there. It was a lot of fun making it. And I also had a lot of fun making the intro to the show last week. Moving onward, sir. We had a noisy. I will remind you of the noisy right now that I played two weeks ago, and that noisy is this one. <laughs> you cannot tell me this isn't what funny. What the hell? It's so horrifying. <laughs> Bob, this is just the best part of the clip. 
<laughs> I love the end. Yeah. I got a lot of funny things in, of, of course, on this one. Mark Genist from Edmonton, Canada said, uh, great show. Is this the sound of tuna fishing reel? Is this the sound of a tuna fishing reel with a fish on it? No. Oh my gosh, how sad. I know. Because if that's what tuna fishing sounded like, I would never do it. That's horrible. <laughs> Imagine hearing that for eight hours. Like, get out of here. Uh, Jesse Dill said, I've been listening to the show for a couple of years now. I never miss a show. Love it. I can, can't wait to give out the book for Christmas. I think this, that is a fan. Jesse, did you come up with that idea? Because that is an right. amazing idea. <laughs> did you guys hear what she said? Or he could be a guy. One more, one more time. I've been listening to the show for a couple of years now. I never miss a show. Love it. I can't wait to give out the book for Christmas. Genius. What <laughs> book is he talking about? Oh, that wow. must be the new SGU book, Steve. Our Available on the Amazon. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe? Yes, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe book coming out uh, October 2nd. Oh, my gosh. But you can pre-purchase the book now, and we would really appreciate it if you do, because we want to get on a bestsellers list. Well, it's, uh, it actually helps a, a promotion of the book in a lot of ways. Yeah, a publisher actually turns on the, their effort to sell the book when we get on a bestsellers list. So it's actually important for us to get there. But anyway, the book... Also, also I don't yeah. know if you know this, but it comes out like two weeks before my birthday. And I can't think of a better birthday present than you guys buying the book. That's mm-hmm. right. Oh, my God. Just I know. Anyway, just I just thought that, that it was nice that you said that, Jesse. But uh, Jesse finishes the email with, I think this week's noisy is a sample of Return of the Night of the Living Dead. Keep up the awesome work. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> yeah, and I'm confused. I mean, you know, I get these emails and a lot of times they don't identify like what episode they're responding to. But I just thought that was, was apropos and I thought Bob would like it. So, I, I included <laughs> so that return, email. Return of the Night of the Living Dead? Yes, so not actually correct. No. All right, I have a couple of uh, couple of close guesses here. Zachary Dorma said, "Screaming sheep?" Question mark. <laughs> no, but we're getting closer. Justin Smith said, "Cats, definitely cats. Two cats in a Mexican standoff, about to go fur balls to the walls in a feline <laughs> showdown to the death." That was closer. Good, good guess, Justin. The correct answer in the winner came from Richard Smith. Richard said, funnily enough, I just rewatched this video the other day. It's two links having a not-too-civil disagreement over territory. No way. That's what yeah. a lynx sounds like? That's yeah. horrifying. It actually, it's from a, it's from a clip uh, sent in from Carolyn Boyd, and it's two links going back and forth, and they think that it might be something to do with mating. You tell me. Here it is again. <laughs> I, it, I love that. <laughs> Yes, it has to do with mating. You're trying to scare away the other alpha male. Yeah, so that like you if can, that has anything to do with mating, you're not a mammal. Anyway, uh, thank you for that. That was a lot of fun. Definitely on like my top 10 funniest noises of all time, maybe even my top five. That was great. I have a new noisy this week. It was sent in by a listener named Daryl Thayer. Uh, Daryl, absolutely love this noisy. Thank you so much for sending it in. Uh, we'll talk more about Daryl next week. In the meantime, here is the noisy. Wait till you find out what this one is. It's really cool. Um, If you're a geek, I'll I'll put that in there. So if you uh, heard any cool noises this week, if you want to say hi or if you want to guess on what the answer is, email me at WTN at the skepticsguide.org. No, no, what's funny, if you go to Amazon, 
They have the frequently bought together suggestion, and they have our oh, book yeah. paired with uh, A Day in the Life of Marlon Bundo. Oh, yeah, what the bunny the book. Heck? I bought the it. The bunny book from John Oliver. Did you guys oh, see that episode? Oh, oh my John God. Oliver? I am proud to share Hell yeah. page space with that. <laughs> that just means that our, our listeners are super woke. That makes me happy. Yep. Super yeah, yeah. <laughs> Super woke. Okay. Thanks, Jay. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Lisa Mattresses. Guys, Lisa is a direct-to-consumer online mattress brand. And you know, the thing about Lisa that's awesome, first of all, because they're direct-to-consumer, you save money, right? You're not, there's no middleman. It's like, you know, you're not buying a car from a dealership and they, they you know, jack up the price 10%, 15%, whatever it is these days. Lisa is a socially conscious company. I love this about them. So for every 10 mattresses that they sell, they donate one to a shelter. They call it their one to 10 program. Uh, They also plant a tree for every mattress sold and donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. Now, how many times do you hear that? Seriously, I think that is awesome. Yeah, I also like how Lisa tries to deal with all the different types of sleepers and and body types is to create these three premium foam layers, including the two-inch Avena foam top layer. And then directly under that is a two-inch memory foam middle layer. And then the most important part, the foundation of the mattress is the six-inch dense core support foam underneath that for durability and structure. Well, we want you to try a Lisa mattress in your own home 100 nights risk-free. Available in the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box right to your door. Or you can go to one of the Lisa Dream Galleries in Soho, New York City, and Virginia Beach, and over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. You can get $125 off and a free pillow when you go to lisa.com slash skeptics. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. We have one email. This comes from David Morris from Bristol, England. And David writes... Hi, thank you for the show. I enjoy it and appreciate the chance to learn. I listened to your discussion of the alkaline diet and with some interest. Midway through last December, I was diagnosed with having silent heartburn. I'd have a rough few months with a progressively worsening cough. I'd had to start trying to sleep sitting up in a chair and had passed out and collapsed at one point due to Mm. coughing. When I got to the respiratory clinic, I was surprised to be told... My lungs were fine, but I had a form of indigestion where I didn't feel the discomfort of indigestion, but my throat and lungs were being irritated, causing the coughing. I was prescribed omeprazole, ranitidine, and a peptic liquid and saw immediate improvement. However, I was also advised to cut down my intake of citrus fruits, coffee, tea, sugar, and things like chili. Mm -hmm. Is this just some woo that infected the NHS, or did I misunderstand that part of your discussion, which sounded like there aren't foods or drinks that encourage an acid stomach. Oh, no. It seems like a lot of people are misunderstanding because we were talking about once things get to your stomach. Yeah, yeah, We never really talked about the esophagus. But, you know, I think we did make a disclaimer at the end that high acid foods can actually irritate your esophagus if you're sensitive to that. Did Mm. we not? I don't remember doing that. But that's that's the distinction, Carrie. You hit upon it. So this is for reflux disease, right? So reflux means that you have an incompetent sphincter. (laughs) Like that, <laughs> Sorry, <such> a, <laughs> that is such a funny thing to say. It's, it sounds like a really sophisticated insult. Like, yeah. what an incompetent sphincter! You have to say it with a British accent. 
No, but the, you have the, the gastric sphincter between the esophagus and the stomach. If that allows stomach acid to, you know, it doesn't close all the way. So the stomach acid splashes into your esophagus. It damages the esophagus because the, the stomach is lined and protected from the acid, but the esophagus isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, that's where you get heartburn. That burning is your esophagus. Oh, I hate that. Mm-hmm. So now if you have that and your esophagus is damaged, then really acidic foods could irritate your already damaged esophagus. So the reason why you might want to avoid highly acidic or, or, other, or other kinds of foods are, are to basically uh, to reduce the stress on the esophagus that has already been damaged. It's not oh. about the stomach. It's not about the acid in the stomach itself. <laughs> However, now I remember we we did a we did a um not a disclaimer but we mentioned at the end that it could be bad for your teeth too. Your teeth, you said teeth. Yeah, yeah, not the yeah. We did talk about something else that wasn't stomach. Yeah, phosphoric. Yeah, it was the teeth. Mm-hmm. But there's also something else. The the reason that well, coffee could be on the list for two reasons. Coffee is acidic, but it also has caffeine in it. And do you know what caffeine does? Yes, opens up your sphincter. It relaxes your sphincter. It oh, relaxes like, yeah. your sphincter. And so, <laughs> coffee enema. What? <laughs> so coffee oh, yeah. is bad. Yuck. Anything with caffeine, caffeine is bad if you have reflux disease. And it's also bad to take right before you go to bed because when you lay down, then you can get reflux because you're laying down. That's why he talked about sleeping sitting up, right? Because then the stomach mm-hmm. acid could flow back into your esophagus. So caffeine right before you lay down or go to or go to sleep is a bad idea as well. However, Generally I looked speaking. at the research to see you know how solid is the actual evidence for this. And it's actually pretty weak. Evidence for what? The uh, evidence that that citrus fruits or acidic foods are bad for acid reflux. Oh, interesting. Um, it's mo- it's mainly case reports or small studies. It's the, the it's not a home run. So, but it's always that question of do you make generally benign recommendations to patients based upon preliminary evidence that may help, you know? Mm-hmm. So the, the evidence is less than solid, but telling people, eh, you might decide to cut back on these foods, it may help. You know, it's it's a pretty benign recommendation to make. And generally, we tell patients, you know, if it bothers you, don't do it kind of thing. Like, So just watch out for it. You might find that, like, drinking orange juice is painful. If that's the case, it could be irritating your esophagus. If it doesn't bother you, then don't worry about it. Right. It it seems like, you know, all the over the counter or even the prescription heartburn medications in their commercials, they always show and I guess it's also the folk wisdom that just like eating garbage food gives you worse yeah. heartburn. Yeah, like, yeah. Chicken wings and french fries. Yeah. yeah, and stuff. And like is yeah. is is there a lot of evidence to support no. that? No. Okay, interesting. No, no. No, I mean, uh. you know, so ulcers are caused mainly by a, you know, H. pylori infection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't have to do with your diet. And, you know, your reflux disease has to do with your sphincter. Does again, doesn't really have to do with your diet. The diet is just not the thing. I mean, it makes a sort of a crude sense to think that what you eat is affecting your stomach, you know, but mm-hmm. it just turns out not to be the case. You know, there may, there is some evidence that these kind of acidic foods may help, may, be painful to an already damaged esophagus, but that's about it. So, uh, the uh, is stress uh, contributing to an ulcer? Is that a no, myth? That's, that's a, a myth. myth. Yeah. yeah, that's a oh, myth. Interesting. All right, let's go on with science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts: two real and one fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? Yes. No mm-hmm. theme or anything, just three regular but very interesting news items. 
Mm. All right, here we go. No whining. <laughs> Item number one. Researchers have discovered how to make diamonds flexible and stretchy. What? Item number two. Engineers have developed a new technique for streaming video 10,000 times faster than the current best algorithms. And item number three, a new analysis finds that humans are responsible for a mass extinction of large mammals over the last 120,000 years. Kara, I don't think you've gone first yeah, in a while. I haven't. Well, at first, when you read the first two, I was thinking, I'm going to pick my answer this week based on which ones I want to be true and I hope to be true. And then the one that I hope isn't true will be the fiction. Unfortunately, you read a super negative one third, and I think that it's true. I think it might be science. So researchers have discovered how to make diamonds flexible and stretchy. Kind of neutral to that. Don't really care if there's a flexible or stretchy diamond. Don't know why you would want one either, because it seems like the main perks of diamonds are that A, they're sparkly and pretty, and that's why people like them. And B, they're really hard, and you can use them to cut into things that you can't cut with other tools. They so, had one in Futurama. Futurama predicted that. Why would you want that? that I don't know. I'm very confused. Okay, Kara, engineer. Kara, yes. Do you like Mrs. Bob? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Exactly. Engineers have developed a new technique for streaming video 10,000 times faster than the current best algorithms. That sounds awesome. Not that probably the streaming speeds aren't sufficient now, but, you know, anything where I can watch Netflix faster sounds amazing. And a newest analysis also won't even be relevant because of net neutrality. Let's see what else. A new analysis finds that humans are responsible for mass extinction of large mammals over the last 120,000 years. I mean, I don't see how this one could be fiction. Because, like, how many mammals? Even if it's just two mammals, then that's two large mammals. We have to have been responsible for at least two Mass large... extinction. Mass oh, extinction. shit. You're right. Okay. What qualifies as a mass extinction, Steve? That's right. A lot? I don't know. There aren't that many large mammals anyway. Now? Just... Well, <laughs> <laughs> actually... Yeah, you were around 120,000 years ago. Okay. Really quick and dirty, and I know that some... some um, Fans who have written in said that they like to hear our thought process. So I'm actually going to give you my thought process on this one. Uh, when I was in the Amazon, I was walking with a botanist and he was telling me about – he calls these big, big, beautiful trees in the Amazon. He calls them um, charismatic megaflora, which is hilarious. Mm. And he talks about how they have these massive fruits that are remnants from an earlier era that no forest animals today are – appropriate dispersers of because these fruit nobody can swallow them and pass them so they're they provide evidence to the fact that there used to be enormous anteaters like bigger than the giant anteaters that are there now enormous elephants even these massive creatures that used to roam the peruvian amazon we know that they must have existed because of the plants that lived there and because of the types of seeds that they dropped so ah i'm gonna say that humans are responsible for mass extinction of large mammals over less under twenty thousand years the other two it's a crapshoot i have no idea ah I'm going to go with the fiction is the 10,000 times faster and say it was like a thousand times faster, that it's an order of magnitude issue. Okay, Bob. I think somebody said, why You know, why would you want to make diamonds flexible and stretchy? I mean, sure, you you lose the, the, the classic hardness, but you also, I mean, diamonds conduct heat faster than, than almost anything. So if you could I have something that. that's flexible and stretchy and then, and then have it be a good conductor like that, then that'd be great. Um, but I mean, sure. I mean, you, I mean, Make diamonds flexible. I mean, I could see, you know, making little chips and putting them on a flexible substrate type of thing, but then that's really not the spirit of what you're saying here, I guess. 
I don't know about that one. Yeah, the um, streaming video, four orders of magnitude faster. I mean, what the hell? That's just, that's, that's insane. That's just such a huge improvement. Let's see. Yeah, the mass extinction one, I'm just going to totally buy that. I mean, I mean, isn't the jury still out? I mean, don't, don't people think that, um, that we were critically responsible for like the extinction of mammoths, mammoths and other megafauna like that? I mean, I mean, I know they're, they're not sure and it could have been environmental, but, um, but I think we, a lot of people think that we had a big hand in that, and of course it doesn't. You know that doesn't that doesn't go back 120,000 years. That's only you know what five to fifteen thousand years. Uh, but uh, crap, uh, diamonds flexible and stretchy. How to that's just like how are you going to do that? It's not it's not diamond anymore. It's not diamond anymore. If you could do that, that's what I was going to say. Why would you call it diamond then? You're going to gather these. I mean, you could be industrial grade diamonds that aren't very expensive, and then use them. Or they're doing great stuff with uh, synthetic diamonds, and you could use that and make that flexible. But you're not going to take these gem quality diamonds. And here's a here's a little piece of diamond silly putty that costs about uh, nine hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> that could be very helpful. Um, crap. Um, all right, I'm gonna. GWC go with the ten thousand times faster. It's too much. Four orders of magnitude is like w- wicked. All right, Evan. All right, uh, the flexible diamonds and stretchy, nonetheless. Well, I'll st- I'll stick with my uh, my what I said earlier about uh, Futurama having predicted that one to be the case. <laughs> thousand years from now it would what what was the reason evan uh they it was a diamond tether that the ship has and they used it as like a fishing line (laughs) put a big hook on the (laughs) end of it and decided to catch fish with it there's something to that effect you know silly but but uh yeah i mean even though we we may not be able to think about what the uh end use of a product like this would be but the fact that they can just do it i think is not beyond our reach um, and then the second one about engineers developing the technique for streaming video 10,000 times faster. Okay. I mean, I, I'm thinking this one's right because, you know, they developed the technique for it. I mean, it's not like it's ready to go to the market. Everybody can have this thing. You know, it's under these sort of, I would suppose, optimal conditions and hooking up these special computers that nobody has access to on a regular basis. And right. Uh, so they were able to game the computer world in a sense to make it that it could possibly happen that technique um by no means are they saying that this is uh, ready for prime time uh i have a feeling that one's going to be right and that leaves me with having to choose the extinction one is the fiction crap uh but i don't know <laughs> but i don't know why i mean when did when did humans start playing with fire i mean was that 120,000 years ago is that why would that be the reason why? I I don't quite know. I, I don't know how humans could have been responsible for it 120,000 years ago. I mean, there's only been civilizations for what, like maybe 50,000 years at the, at the furthest back? I, I'm, I, I have a piece of, obviously I have a few pieces of knowledge missing there to really put this one together. I'm going to say, though, that that one, 120,000 years, note for mass extinction, that's the fiction. And Jay. So stretchy diamonds... Yeah, I kind of agree with Bob. Is it a diamond at that point if they were able to to do something to to carbon? I don't know. I, I mean, uh, it would be amazingly useful though, Kara. Like if you had a material that was flexible or stretchy, uh, depending on how stretchy it is, 
you know, yet how rigid it, it could be. You could do some remarkable things with it. See, you can tell that I am not or why I am not a material science because every time we get these kinds of prompts, I'm always like, why would you want that? <laughs> 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 what would that do? <laughs> and we're like, oh, Kara. Oh, yeah. <laughs> change everything. I mean, the first thing I thought about was like a spaceship. Like, I have to admit, like, just see that future. Yeah. Remember that book, Bob, Sentenced to Prism? Shit, yeah. Alan Dean Foster loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> met him because of Michael Whalen. I got to meet that. Character. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah, it was cool. Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, you know, this that first one is bothering me because I, I just don't think it's diamonds at that point, but I could see how Steve would argue against that so i'm gonna move on to the next one uh engineers take streaming video ten thousand. yeah this was the one that stood out for me ten thousand times faster is just so remarkably faster than than like the, the fastest speeds that we have today are you saying the best algorithms all right that's the tricky part there ten thousand times faster than the current best algorithms even still, 10,000 times faster, even with an improved algorithm or, or a collection of algorithms, it's way too much growth in one step. So I'm like 99% sure that that one is the fiction. Uh, moving on to the last one. Um, <laughs> Why would you mm-hmm. need to move on if you're 99%? I just want to read it again because you guys took so freaking <laughs> long. I actually forgot what it said. Um, responsible, humans responsible for mass erections. I mean extinctions. Yes, I agree. Humans are responsible for the mass extinctions of mammals for 120,000 years. Yes, that sounds exactly like what we do. And you know what? Watch <laughs> sure. us go because we're not even close to being done. We keep on the trail that we're on right now. We're going we're gonna to total our planet. Anyway. I mean, just, weren't Cro-Magnons around then? Too? I know, I mean, right? They, weren't they responsible to some degree? Yeah, we, can, we call someone a Cro-Magnon like, to insult them and we're dumber than they are because look at what we're doing to our planet. <laughs> Anyhow, Evan – I think this 10,000 time thing, that is such a crock of S-H-I-T, Steve. No wow. way. Are we, are we anywhere near that? So, uh-uh. Uh, see, <laughs> if, if we had the opportunity, I think I would change my answer to Evans. But I can't, and I have to stick with uh, the 10,000 times fast. Wow. Wow. Holy can't. shit. So after I go, she's like, you know, I know. if I could. <laughs> she failed. I changed my answer away from Jay's. I think Evan, Evan convinced me of the 120,000 Oh, gosh. Thing. Well, I guess uh, we will well, find as out always. As always, there are hidden questions in these in these uh, items. Like, for example, how how big are these diamonds, or over what distance can they stream the video? Or what role did climate change have in the mass extinction of large mammals over the last yeah. hundred twenty thousand years? And over what time period are we really talking about? Was it twelve thousand or was it one hundred twenty thousand? But also, twelve thousand oh, is included in one hundred twenty thousand. Yes, but one hundred twenty thousand is not included in twelve thousand. Exactly. <laughs> What's that? There's questions to all of these. They could potentially be correct or wrong depending on which way the answers go. You're so, so evil, Steve. You all <laughs> agree in the first one, so we'll start there. Researchers have discovered how to make diamonds flexible and stretchy. You all think that one is science, uh-huh. and that one is science. Yes. Aha. How do you think they did it? So they're still diamond. They are still completely 100% diamond. Normally, diamonds have a, an elasticity of basically 1%. In other words, you could deform them by about 1% before they will snap, right? Before wow. they'll break. Yeah, That's so they're, low. they're brittle. They're brittle, yeah. The, hard as hell. The, 
these diamonds can they uh, have they can stand an elastic strain up to nine percent. Which that's doesn't that's a lot higher. One percent to nine percent is actually yeah, a lot that's higher. A, that's a good size jump. They not achieved that, not that, that. I would still call it flexible and stretchy, but continue. <laughs> no, if you see the video of, of it, it, you would say, "Yeah, that's flexible. It's really nine percent. It, it could bend nine percent and then come all the way back into its original shape." Yeah, that's implied. So yeah, uh, <laughs> but the way they do that is by making nano diamond needles. They Ooh, stretch it out needles. into these oh. tiny little needle diamonds, and then those are very, very flexible, you know, compared to regular diamonds. Yeah, because the 9%, 9% shows up is more dramatic in, in one, that one dimension, that one long yeah. dimension. It, it show, it's more like, like the expansion of space. You know, the longer the distance, the more dramatic all that expansion yeah. is. Bob, do you get like goosebumps when you hear the phrase nano-diamond needle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if, you, if I had if you were you know strapped to my like my heart rate or something you or blood pressure you you'd, be, you'd see a little beep beep yeah a nano a nano peak <laughs> barely measurable <laughs> so you know what what use would this be Kara, right yes what why would anybody want this they don't know but they do say <laughs> right, that's oh, that makes you feel a little better yeah, right. that, hang on it opens up unprecedented possibilities for tuning its optical Optomechanical, magnetic, phononic, and catalytic properties. Okay, that's so, a lot. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool. Lot. So that's cool. it, it just it. creates a lot of possibilities. You know, any, any way time, anytime you find ways of manipulating matter into different forms, you know, it always opens up the possibility that we could find something useful for it. Plastic so, like, say, we we are clever chimps, and we we are good at figuring crap mm-hmm. like that out. Too clever. All right. Sometimes. Sometimes. Let's go on number two. Engineers have developed a new technique for streaming video 10,000 times faster than the current best algorithms. Evan, you think this one is science. Everyone else thinks this one is the fiction. Evan, you have a, you know, sometimes you go out on your own and you're the sole winner. Mm -hmm. Sometimes not. And this time, this one is the fiction. Yeah, baby. Sorry, Evan. Yes. Thank you, Steve, for not letting us change our answers. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for sticking to the rules. Yeah. But, 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 researchers but did achieve HD video streaming at 10,000 times lower power, not oh, faster. Wow. Oh, that's where you got the number from. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still cool. I don't know, how, again, how applicable it's going to be. It's interesting, though. They, they use the technique called backscatter. Bob, are you familiar with the backscatter? Yeah, I've heard of it, definitely. Yeah, so it's it's a way of... Sending it's a different way of sending data, um, I don't, and it's only usable under short distances. So I'm not really sure what how useful it's going to be in terms of like streaming things over the internet. But the they they demonstrate previously it was thought that this backscatter technique could only be used for very low data rates, but they were able to show that you could stream HD video, you know, using backscatter. Essentially, it encodes the pixel data in the duration and intensity of the photons, you know. Um, so, like, the, the longer they are, the brighter the pixel. And so it's just a, cl- a clever way of encoding it in, in this backscatter cool. of light. But it, and then, but it has a limited range. But it, but it does require very low power. 
they were able to do 720 HD videos at 10 frames per second to a device up to 14 feet away. So you, so you could potentially say stream video from your computer to your phone or your TV or something That's like it. that. That's exactly it. That's, That's awesome. But nobody's watching 720. Come on. No, so what? Make, <laughs> make it HD or even 4K and you're still – it's still a respectable – uh, power power outage power power but, but seven, 720, 720 is fine for your for your phone, Kara. Yeah, right. that's true for yeah. your phone. And that small and that's what this would be useful for: small devices that don't have a lot of power. It's exactly okay. exactly what it'd be useful for. <laughs> I'll give them that. All right, so what do you get <laughs> as long as you're one, right? All right, that all means that a new analysis finds that humans are responsible for a mass extinction of large mammals over the last hundred and twenty thousand years is science. Now, you guys are familiar with the age of gigantism, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Back in, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of years ago, there was this period where where there were lots of gigantic massive animals. And then over the last 120,000 years, the average size of mammals has been steadily decreasing. The, there's been an asymmetrical extinction where the larger a mammal is, the more likely it is to go extinct. It hasn't really been known exactly what caused that phenomenon. One, one major hypothesis was that it was climate change favoring smaller body size. However, the, the recent study shows that it tracks awfully well to human migrations around the world. Oh, that nice. every, every time and place that humans go, the, the, large, the large megafauna starts to die out. You bastards. And is that because we kicked their asses? We, well, is it because it's both hunting. we hunted them? It's hunting. But is it also because we competed for other resources nah. with them? They, they think no. it's hunting. Yeah, because uh, it's like why kill them. ten small things if you can kill exactly. one really big thing? You yeah. kill one really big thing, you feed your village for a week. You know, yeah. it's a no brainer. And the, yeah. the bottom line was that once we got to the point where we had the weapons and the and the technique of group hunting, once we got to the point where we were really successful megafauna hunters. You know, it was just, you know, cost effective in terms of our effort to kill bigger and bigger animals. Yeah, bigger return on the investment. Yeah. And supermarket. Steve, you know how it works, right? It's Mm -hmm. first you get the spears, then you get the meat, and then you get the (laughs) the women. Then you get the women. Oh, no. What is that from? Scarface. (laughs) Oh, come on. Scarface. Evan, I was – I was going to say that it, it wouldn't matter if we weren't yet in kind of uh, agrarian societies or any, like hunter-gatherers predated agrarian societies and, and what we think of as modern civilization. Like we had spear points yeah. hundreds, you know, or at least tens of thousands of years ago. And sometimes, sometimes they would drive animals over cliffs. You know, they wouldn't even need the spears necessarily. Yeah. It's just that we were really smart. You know, we had our brains. Mm-hmm. What were Cro-Magnon right. doing around that time? Well, Cro-Magnon, by the way, are modern, fully modern Homo sapiens, right? And they they come right. around around thirty thousand years ago, and they were cave dwellers, and they were they were big game hunters, absolutely, right? So they participated in the mm-hmm. sure. So therefore, <laughs> a more a more complete correct answer would have been. A new analysis finds that humans and Cro-Magnons are responsible. No, no Cro-Magnon you just said Cro-Magnons are, are humans. Human. They are human. No, you they said are, hom- yeah, Homo sapien. Homo sapien. They are fully human. They are fully human. Yeah, Cro-Magnons are a race. That's like saying Europeans, you know. Mm-hmm. But I bet you Neanderthal right. was also part of this. Yeah, probably. Yeah, but that's okay. That doesn't. That doesn't. You know. That doesn't make the rest of it incorrect. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> sure. We're just really successful hunters. That's right. the bottom line. Yeah, we work yeah. well together too. That's right. 
a part this is of not you. something we're, to be proud of, people. <laughs> this is very we're, sad. We're we are hunters. kicking this planet's ass like nobody's business. Well, and it's business. still happening if you That's think what about the it. the researchers say. This is just something people do. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they included. Yeah. But like even still, the, what we think of as charismatic uh, megafauna is by and large is, is endangered. Yeah, and they say that this, there's no reason to think this trend has stopped, that we're yeah. still killing off megafauna and – you know, they project it into the future, and you know, pretty soon there's not going to be any large mammals at all. Nope, except um, in zoos. It's very sad. Right. And actually, I read a recent study. I think it's one of the ones that I pitched to you, Steve, that was really interesting because it was showing that these animals that we think of as being these charismatic, like the animals that we decorate our children's bedrooms with and tell nighttime yeah. stories about – it, it may be the case that because they're so beloved, it's actually correlated with their endangerment simply because they did a survey and asked people about the status of these animals and the ones that most people recognize by name, I think because they they're so ubiquitous in their storytelling, they think are ubiquitous on the planet as well. Yeah, it's the availability heuristic. Yeah, which is sad because they're definitely not. You think that things that readily come to mind are common. You know. mm-hmm. Yeah, but unfortunately, they're actually probably much more Time rare. to step up our cloning efforts. Yeah. Well, cloning doesn't give you genetic diversity. That's the uh, big problem. Well, oh, yeah. Well, we have Christmas we'll now, so. We step up so. a lot of efforts. Yeah, I guess so. But genetic diversity. A lot diversity, of very easy things we can do that we're just not doing. Yeah. Or we could not kill them off, you know. Exactly. That? That's one of them. <laughs> yeah, like gorillas, you know, are one of the charismatic megafauna, and they're really critically endangered. You know? Almost every great ape is like horribly critically it's endangered. It's a Orangutans thought. are really bad too. Yeah, I know it's terrible. And rhinoceros, we saw like oh there are gosh, none the left of the white. Right, I know. All right. Yeah. Sorry to have such a sad item in the uh, <laughs> yeah. description, but thanks a lot, asshole. Good job, guys. <laughs> All right, Evan, you have a quote for us? Yeah, I do. If a little kid ever asks you just why the sky is blue, you look at him or her right in the eye and say. It's because of quantum effects involving Rayleigh scattering combined with a lack of violet photon receptors in our retina. (laughs) (laughs) Phil Plate. Okay. Oh, of course that's Phil Plate. (laughs) Of course it's Phil. Brilliant. And I think his point here is, hey. Don't dumb it down. Right. Teach them the science. You know, if they've got the questions, you either say you don't know and you look it up together with them. Yeah. Give them the straight poop. You don't come up with, you know, some sort of fantasy tale or something that's fluffy and nice and something yeah. outside the truth yeah and i get phil's i get phil's point but you, i would back that up with a, with a little bit more age-appropriate language description of what's going on i i that was always my approach is you sort of give them you know you've got to be right in, it's a carrot thing you know it, you want the challenge to be just in front of the person if it's too far out in front they're lost they glaze over if it's you. not out in front at all then they don't advance if you just – right? That's why like video game type algorithms are so effective at training because it constantly keeps the challenge rating right in front of where the you currently are. But also uh, the other point here is that we tend to think kids are stupid. Uh, just – you know, it's just our, our – Yeah. And, and many are. Yeah. They, you know, <laughs> meaning that compared to adults – Obviously, they don't have much vocabulary yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, a, in a lot of ways, obviously, brains. yeah, they, they they have immature <laughs> brains and they lack a lot of knowledge and they lack you know sophistication, etc. But you, you, generally speaking, it's been my experience, and I think this this is borne out by evidence that 
we tend to underestimate rather than overestimate their intelligence and that you're you're more likely to be inappropriately talking down to kids and rather you should give them the benefit of the doubt talk a little bit above the level where you think you should be and you're probably going to be appropriate mm-hmm. you know so i always would give like my daughters or whoever who ask a question the benefit of the doubt and give them you know, you got to just make sure you're limiting the jargon, right? Yeah, you don't use words they don't understand, but don't dumb down the complexity or the nuance or the or the, the real understanding of the answer. Give kids the credit for being smart and they will rise to it. And, and the good and, news is if they don't learn. know what you're talking about, they'll keep asking you questions. And they'll well, freaking that, ask. You hope so. <laughs> right. That's the, I think yeah. that's the point. And, you know, there's, there's obviously a skill to being a good, a good teacher, but it's worth developing that skill. If you're raising kids, then you are their most significant teacher, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you dumb it down, you, you know, and, and you underestimate their, their knowledge and ability – it's a completely wasted opportunity. You're going to make, you're going to bore them. You're going to, you know, it's, it's only bad things will come about. You, you very rarely will lose anything by, by assuming they're, they're smarter than you think they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's what Phil was getting at. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining me this week. You're sure, welcome. Steve. Okay, Steve. Don't forget about our Patreon page. Go to Patreon slash the skeptics guide to look at all kinds of Great stuff that we give our listeners who support us. Um, Jay, you're uploading the uh, the pre-show banter. Yep. By, by the time this show comes out, I'll have had a new one come up uh, by the end of this week, um, which means it should be there if you are a patron. And yeah, so the pre-show banter is a lot of fun. It's basically I, I had been stealthily recording the uh, all of us. During the half an hour before we do the show, we, we talk for a little while and then we record our ads and all that stuff. And um, I, I did it for two years, and these guys didn't really know what was happening. And I just have a lot of gems, and uh, people are re- people are really enjoying what I'm putting up. So there's there's some crazy discussions that we have that are not like SGU appropriate. You have to be a member to hear them. I'm so scared. <laughs> don't worry, most of it's not incriminating. Sure. And don't forget about Nexus. Our annual conference that we hold in New York City every year, July 12th through 15th. Go to NECSS.org. Uh, you can see the full list of speakers. We have a great lineup this year, including Jennifer Ouellette as our keynote speaker. Of course, the SGU will be there with our, our live show, our private show, uh, meeting and greeting all the attendees. would like to see a lot of our listeners there. Lots of great workshops. Check it out. Hope to see you all there. All right. Well, thanks again, guys. God bless you, Steve. (laughs) And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 